After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi everyone, this is Raghu Marcus, and this is Mind Rolling. Happy to be here today. We have a wonderful new guest on Mind Rolling, and his name is Gil Fronsdahl, and he is really, he's like part of our family, and we didn't even know it. And thank God for my wife, my beautiful wife, Saraswati, who you will hear with me. She joined me on this podcast because she found Gil, and we're going to talk about that, and I'll let you know a little bit more uh, before we uh, play the the talk that we did or the chat that we had with Gil. Fabulous, fabulous uh, man, teacher. Uh, but I do want to remind everyone again, this is, uh, I think this is only the second podcast that's under the Be Here Now network, which is the new network. We moved over from a MindPod network, which, by the way, everybody is still operating and hosting new podcasters. You can check them out. But we uh, decided, as I've said before, I just want to remind everybody that we are being hosted ourselves under the umbrella of Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation. And so Jack, Sharon, Joseph Goldstein, Krishnadas, Ramdas, Lama Suryadas, mind rolling with yours truly, Danny Goldberg with his rock and rolls, incredible. Uh, podcast and Chris Grosso. We are all of us here at Be Here Now Network. So please, everybody, get in there and sign up. Obviously, we love for you to subscribe to to all of the podcasts, but of course, whichever ones are your favorite on iTunes. And uh, by the way, doing a review of what you like is helpful to spread the word. If you go up on iTunes, you can find that. And again, sign up at the email list because we have some fabulous stuff coming up. We are This will not be just a podcast network, as you'll be seeing when you go to BeHereNowNetwork.com, where we have uh, live podcasts. We just did a couple of them that are being put together. So there, there's going to be a whole um, video component to what we're doing and a live uh, in front of an audience component to what we're doing. We're going to have online courses. We have our uh, Life in Balance course coming up with our app, 
which is going to have daily awareness reminders. You know, those push notifications, suddenly you get a push notification with Ramdas going, be here now to help us stop our worlds in our busy, busy days, meditations, timers, all of it. So that's coming up. So in order to find out about this stuff, it'd be great if you sign up for on the email list, just go to the website, BeHereNowNetwork.com, and then you'll get all of the news. And also when you go there, of course, we still need you to support what we're doing. This is a Certainly, it's a nonprofit, a Love Serve Remember Foundation that hosts Ramdas.org and now be here now network.com. And we depend on everybody to help support what we're doing and support the teachers that are involved. Obviously, there's a donate button, so that's easy. Uh, recurring small amounts uh, are great, or big amounts for that matter. But go to the Amazon, we have an Amazon link. You can just copy and paste that link onto, into your browser on your desktop. And uh, whenever you want to buy anything from Amazon, we get a little piece of it. And that way, you're supporting us and the teachers and everything that we're doing under Ramdas here, and at the same time getting what you need from Amazon. Now, we used to do a thing on Mind Rolling that I haven't done in a long time, and I'm going to start doing it again because I like it for myself. I found, uh, first of all, there's a, so there's a couple of things that I'm going to recommend. One of them is this new Radiohead record, A Moon-Shaped Pool, that just came out that's fantastic, okay? I mean, I know a lot of people are old-time Radiohead fans. This, this like, harks back to the first couple of records. So check it out, Radiohead, A Moon-Shaped Pool. Go get it on Amazon. And then the other thing is... Some time back, I did a podcast with Reggie Ray, another great uh, Dharma teacher. And uh, we found that we had something in common, which was dealing with anger. And uh, that continues for me, unfortunately. Uh, and, uh, and he gave me this tip, and I, hadn't, and I suddenly just found the note that I made when he told me, get this book. Now, for any of you out there that are having similar issues, and of course I think anger uh, is uh, pretty commonplace for many of us. I won't say most of us, but certainly many of us. So there's a book called When Anger Hurts by Matthew McKay. Highly recommend it. I don't have it yet. I'm, even, I'm recommending something that I haven't read because I trust Reggie Ray when he told me Get this book. It's going to help you. When Anger Hurts, Matthew McKay. So there you go. That's uh, some of the uh, recommendations for Amazon so that you all can help us out by uh, using our Amazon link for Be Here Now Network. Now, Gil Fronsdahl, he, here's how we found him. I mean, we say this in the podcast, but just briefly, my wife was like listening to this guy and when she, at night, uh, and I'm next to her, and I'm like, wow, you seem to be really... In, who is this? And she goes, oh, this is Baba Gill. I go, Baba Gill? I've been in, to India forever. I never heard of Baba Gill. Is this a, a Westerner? What, what's going on? And she said, it's a joke. I like him. So he, to me, he's a Baba. He's a Vipassana teacher, and he's been teaching uh, for a long time, and he's very close to Jack Cornfield. I went, oh, and so it's taken quite a while, but we finally managed to nail him down and do this amazing 
uh, chat with Gil. He's trained. He's trained in Soto Zen, in Insight Meditation. He, uh, I mean, he's he ain't no sludge. He's got a Ph.D. in Buddhist studies from Stanford. Okay. Meanwhile, he's just a really down to earth great guy, uh, and he. Um, he also, so as I said, he's been very, very involved with Zen, not just to be Pashna. So that makes him kind of an interesting combo. Uh, and for those of you who are interested, he teaches uh, insight meditation. He's one of the, he's the primary teacher at uh, IMC, Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City. And so uh, we'll also put uh, his URL up there, and he's got a book. You'll hear about that in the podcast. So. Let's listen now to this great chat with uh, Saraswati and myself with Gil, Baba Gil, Fronstal. Hi, this is Raghu Marcus and another edition of Mind Rolling. I'm here with my partner, wife, life companion, Saraswati Marcus. And I am uh, really happy today to have Gil Fronsdahl joining us from California. And uh, Gil is just uh, a, a big part of the family that we haven't met before. And he uh, is uh, part of, a, as you all know, and we talk a lot about uh, the antecedents of Vipassana, insight meditation in this country and how this was brought back initially by Jack, Joseph, and Sharon. And they don't even have last names anymore. They're that <laughs> well. <laughs> and, uh, and Gil is part of that family and has worked with Jack over the years and uh, is part of the uh, Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, which you will find out more about because we're going to have the URL and we're going to uh, up on the website and you can uh, reach... Uh, if you're in that neighborhood, it'd be a great place to drop in and uh, and share some Dharma talks and so on, meditation. So, uh, first, I just want to get from you what it is that led you on this path and when you were a youngster and in teenage years, and what were the perhaps the stressors that led you to reach out for something beyond what this culture gives us on a day-to-day and our parents and so on. I know that uh, you were not brought up initially in the States, but certainly in the West, in Northern Europe. And uh, yeah, but what, what were the things that really uh, began your transformation onto the path, Gil? Well, I think the first was intellectual, where I was... Uh, I was... Uh, uh, in college in Santa, UC, University of California in Santa Barbara and it was the Vietnam War time and I was draftable oh. and uh, so there was a lot of intense discussions uh, in the dorms about the war and the draft and what to do about it and uh, I was the extreme pacifist in our in among my friends and to live my pacifist ideas, I felt like I had to be willing to put my life on the line and protest. Hmm. And I was also afraid to die. Hmm. And the idea of uh, uh, not being able to follow through my ideals uh, troubled me a lot. So I looked around for some way, some uh, something that would help me, support me, 
to be able to live my ideals and not be afraid to have, uh, not be afraid. And so uh, I found Buddhism, and something about Buddhism resonated for me as a practice that would lead me uh, to be fearless in this kind of uh, uh, the war, conflict, protests that uh, were part of our generation. But they didn't really get me to start practicing, but uh, that's what got me interested in Buddhism. Hmm. Practical, real practical reasons, right? <laughs> and then um, you went abroad and, and did study abroad, did you not, at that time? No, eventually I went abroad to practice, but that was some uh, many years later. Uh, what happened was I ended up um, uh, visiting at the farm in Tennessee. Oh, Gaskin. With Stephen Gastner. And, uh, and there, uh, they, I stayed there for a few months, and the Bible of this very large commune was Zen Mind Beginner's Mind. Mm. And when I read this book, uh, it, uh, I was just blown away that uh, he was saying all the things that I already knew but didn't know. <laughs> didn't know I knew. And so the first chance I had, I went out to San Francisco Zen Center mm. and was introduced to Zen. And, uh, and that uh, really attracted me a lot. And it took me about three years to get around to actually starting a formal practice. It was a Zen practice then, huh? So it began with Zen practice, hmm. and I did that for a good number of years. And uh, at some point, I went to Japan to continue my Zen practice in Japan. And while I was there, I had to get a new visa for Japan. And the easiest, cheapest way for me to do it was to go to Bangkok. And <laughs> while I was waiting for my visa, I thought I would do something. You know, what is this, you know? So I, I found myself in a meditation monastery in the outside of Bangkok. And I said, I'm here, and what should I do? And while I'm waiting for my visa, and I was given instructions, given a little cabin to, to do my practice in. And every day I would see the abbot, and every day I practiced all day, most of the night. And then after, and it took me 10 weeks to somehow understand that the visa wasn't coming. So my first Vipassana retreat was 10 weeks long, <laughs> thanks, thanks to the embassy in Bangkok. <laughs> And who who was the teacher? Because I know Jack also studied over there. At that yeah, I think early. it was a very a, a fairly unknown teacher named uh -huh. Ajahn, Ajahn Kao. Hmm. It was a kind of a kind of a chaotic, dog patch kind of place uh, outside of uh, Bangkok. Wow, amazing! So, uh, well, just to step back a little, and I we talked just before. Uh, we uh, got this thing going. Um, I said, the only way I know about you is through my wife, and I'll tell you how. Uh, she likes to listen to Dharma talks at night. and and um, Not just Dharma talks. I like to listen to audio Dharma. Oh. <laughs> Specifically, um, I like, I mean, I, of course, like to listen to other things, but for a long, long time, there was this one organization that just seemed to be ahead of the game in terms of their um, offerings and their dharma that they just freely gave, um, you know, in like uh, in volume, in volumes. You could just listen and never stop listening. And it just so happens that um, I did that um, for, a, you know, a long, I mean, you know, a couple of years for sure, like almost every night. Nice. And so, one night, I was taken by how rapt she was uh, with this particular these particular talks. I said, "Well, who are you listening to?" 
And by that time, she had given you a nickname. Okay, we it had was, a relationship already. Yeah, Don't, it's it's like, must, <laughs> like I thought, you know him. He's, uh, your name was Baba Gill. Okay, so I said, Baba Gill. I've been in India off and on forever. I've never heard of Baba Gill. <laughs> she said, Well, he's in Redwood City. Maybe that's why. <laughs> and so that, uh, and then she turned me on to some of the talks as well. So that that was our little uh, the denouement of us realizing that uh, we had a new friend and she would constantly refer to you in a way that I thought well you you've how long have you known him by the way <laughs> so it was you know it was really great um so as you started I'm just wondering about your your so your earliest experiences people who listen to to mind rolling are always asking about meditation and what it practical applications of it. And then they'll inevitably ask also about uh, whatever absorption experiences one might have had that forms a, um, a motivation factor for continuing. Can you talk a little bit about your own experience with the early, early absorption uh, experiences or experiences in general through meditation that did form the backbone of, of motivation for you? Yes, I mean, I think the first thing that really uh, hooked me into meditation was not absorption or concentration, but rather a feeling of, uh, and the language I used for myself back then was a feeling of integrity. Mm. And uh, I felt a very strong sense of integrity of being whole um, sitting there. Uh, it could be, uh, I used to refer to it as uh, unconditional acceptance of the present moment. And um, so I wasn't particularly absorbed or concentrated, and that was uh, to my benefit because I didn't know so much about uh, the uh, what meditation was about. And so it didn't occur to me that I was not supposed to be thinking. <laughs> so my, my uh, uh, stability or this discovery of learning to accept the moment as it is <laughs> then included uh, my thinking, included all of it. And for me, that uh, a very meaningful feeling of integrity arose, and that hooked me. And the way it hooked me was it became my quest then to try to bring that integrity into my life outside of meditation. And, uh, and that was what really uh, got me going more seriously into doing Buddhist practice and eventually got me to be living at, uh, at uh, the San Francisco Zen Center. Mm. Wonderful. So, and then when, once I was there, I went further and further. I eventually be going to their monastery and meditating many hours a day for weeks on a time. And um, but it was never the purpose was never exactly to explicitly was not to go into deeper absorption, but rather to practice in such a way that I could bring that integrity and live it in the rest of my life. Hmm. It's beautiful. Well, I think. Here's your big. T- she knew that I was going to do this podcast with you, and she said, uh-huh. "Okay, I absolutely have to be there because I've got questions." So here's your big chance, my love. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, I don't. I actually don't have questions. I'm. I'm just a big fan. You know, the way that. Um, the way that individuals communicate land on someone, you know, and that we all have a different relationship with that. And it just so happens the way that you communicate ideas um, uh, is uh, really lands on me 
just right. And I think you're also a fabulous storyteller. Um, I'm sure I'm not the first to say that. And um, um, and even really difficult concepts, um, uh, like I, one of the talks that I've loved and I've actually transcribed things that really that really touch me. I I spend the time to try to really learn it and almost memorize it. And anyway, um, is a talk that you have given um, on non-self and how you bring that to um, around to really um, uh, having a relationship with your own um, uh, self-confidence um, in a way that's contained that I think you at one point um, compared it to um, where you need to be seen less in a certain way um, on the outside because you feel so, so full and complete on the inside. That's just a different idea um, of, you know, the way that's communicated, I can really relate to. And isn't, Raghu, isn't something coming up about... Buddhism and bhakti and this question of non-self comes up a lot in our circles. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And it can be an arcane concept in Buddhism. Ramdas got into it with Joseph or maybe Lama Suryat, I don't remember. Uh, you know, the relationship between the Buddhist concept of no self and, and soul in, in Hindu thing and and how that all comes together because they can't it's just a way of describing something but why talk about uh non-self and, and uh for people to uh, get a grasp of of what that really means and how it can relate uh in terms of how we go about daily day to day yeah i think that um maybe it helps a little bit to understand that in, the, in buddhist language the concept of self is uh an idea that functions like wind drag and so if you live by this idea or these concepts of self, identify something as self, it just slows you down in the wind. It slows you down in the world. It forms a constriction, a tightness, a narrowing, um, a limitation more than an opening. And that uh, when we can stop identifying uh, things as the self, as myself, that it, uh, it doesn't deny anything. It just means that we're now more open and available and transparent for this world as we live it. Mm. Yeah. And uh, but it's often misunderstood because the language of no self, non-self, not self um, lends itself to people thinking that's some kind of self-effacement, like they're not supposed to count. And uh, in a way, it's almost the opposite. That um, uh, the foundation for not-self teaching is a strong sense of. Uh, fullness or confidence of strength and presence and honesty, uh, all the kind of qualities a psychologist would think would create a strong sense of self. All those qualities become stronger and stronger. And as those become stronger, there's less need to hold on to anything as the self or define oneself by anything. Hmm. Love that. Great. Um, Let me just um, yes, chime sorry. in for a second. One of the things that was really helpful, um, Gil, was um, in this one particular lecture I'm thinking of is how you framed out this conversation by um, uh, 
um, by describing the three models of how we deal with the question of self. And that really kind of takes you through the range of what most people's experience is. Do you know what I'm talking about? I, I might be. You might have to fill me in a little bit more, so I can. Yeah. I so many different ways I talk about this. So. Yeah. Well, the ways that the this this one particular way, you talked about that uh, an individual might use um, uh, use the um, they might identify with the um, let's see um, through. Understand. Let me say. Let me say it this way. They may understand themselves or the the concept of self through a more childlike lens, for example. Or um, the second way is to find is to identify with an everlasting uh, soul that never goes away. And then the third way would be uh, more the Buddhist approach to the strong sense of self that is really um, not caught. Like that, yes, and it, it's uh, it's not caught. It, it doesn't. It's no longer being defined by anything, and so you you can't really define it, because uh, defin- as soon as you have a def, it's kind of like having an a um, a uh, if you have a fist and you open the fist up, and then you try to and you really like having the open hand, so you grasp it and tighten up your fist again you lose the fist. Hmm. I mean, you lose the open hand. So to have a, a set to, to no longer define a, yourself, the self in any clear way, but to live in this kind of open, uh, transparent, free way uh, that doesn't require a definition. And then you soon, as soon as you want to define that, it's like closing up the hand. To, hmm. You lose the open hand. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Gil, in one of your talks, um, and th- this is a subject that we're, we're all dealing with every day, in one of your talks, you talked about how you actually asked, this is quite some time ago, you asked uh, the people, I guess at Audio Dharma, can you tell me what are the top 10 uh, talks in popularity on Audio Dharma, right? Oh, I have no idea. Yeah. You know, this is... I don't track what goes on. No, you uh, you asked them oh, to asked. tell you what oh, are what the top. What, did they, what yeah. did they say? So they said, well, they they gave you the ten, and the out of the ten, four, almost half, were all about fear. Oh yes, I remember this. It wasn't actually Audio Dharma. It was a Dharma Seed. Oh, Dharma Seed, right? Dharma right. Seed tape library, but back in the uh, many years ago. Yeah. Yes, four out of the ten of their best sellers yeah. was, uh, had to do with fear. Dharma. Yeah, four out of ten bestsellers. So fear, and it went on: depression, anxiety, yes. dread, angst, panic, flight, alarm, <laughs> and you and you said, I think then. This is a good occasion for us to spend a couple of nights here on some of this subject. Now, we don't have a couple of nights. We're doing an hour-long or whatever uh, podcast. But um, please do talk about fear, how we can approach it, and how we can potentially transform ourselves not to be uh, as caught as many of us do get. Great. Uh, Happy to do it. But if I may make a little aside in terms of what people want to hear, uh, some years ago, I went to a, a sitting group to give a talk, and um, I was going to give a talk about enlightenment, 
But before I, I didn't know these people very well, so before I was going to speak, I said, you know, I'm, I, I'm thinking of talking about enlightenment, but before I do, is there anything that you would like to talk about or bring up? So uh, we ended up the rest of the evening talking about anger. <laughs> really? <laughs> and we never talked about enlightenment. And I was very happy because this was practical and directly meaningful in their lives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so fear, one of the very interesting things about fear and uh, in doing mindfulness practice is that uh, mindfulness practice involves not giving into the fear, but being able to hold it spaciously with equanimity in awareness. Mm -hmm. And one of the uh, very choice descriptions for how to do that is to help your fear feel safe. So if you're afraid, um, you want to be present for your fear so the fear feels like it's okay to be there. You're not condemning it. You're not trying to get rid of it. That it's safe for it to be there. And that's, uh, uh, that's uh, uh, very much uh, what often brings about deep-seated fear for people to begin with is that they never had that safety in their lives. And so to, to not have that safety, experience that safety as an adult, but then to turn around and offer it to oneself, offer it to that part of oneself. Um, so the fear is allowed to be there. It feels safe enough to be there and be shown. And finally, be able to be seen, be known. Uh, in due time, that fear will relax. But to have a, a headlong approach to get rid of it, to fix it, to push it away, to do something with it, uh, the fear just feels that it's not wanted. It's it's a bad thing. How how to get it uh, get oneself in a position where it it there could be a cushion for the fear. There can be a safety yeah. zone. How do we create that zone? Shall mm -hmm. we say? Uh, with the Vipassana, one of the really crucial things is to understand what we're doing. So first we want to understand what are we doing that doesn't make the fear feel safe or give it a cushion. Uh, do we have anger? Do we have blame? Do we have, are we afraid of the fear? Uh, are we attacking it? Are we denying it? What do we actually do in relationship to it? And because if you understand our relationship to it, then there's wisdom. And then, we're, then we can be more realistic about what we're doing. We're not going to do a spiritual bypass around ourselves. Mm. Okay. And then the second thing is um, uh, uh, Vipassana practice tends to work a lot better if it's embodied practice, if we're really in our, in our bodies. So if you can identify where the fear is felt in the body, what part of the body is activated by the fear, and then bring the attention to that part of the body and, uh, and hold it. And you use the word cushion. I like the idea of cupping your hands together and imagining awareness is in those hands, and they come up underneath the fearful place in your body and just hold it there. Great image. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. I mean, along the same lines of um, being uh, investigating or exploring, um, this actually came up today in a, a yoga class I uh, was teaching. Uh, I asked everyone, how how you doing? And a woman said, awesome. And, uh, um, and I was like, ah, it's interesting. I'm awesome too, but <laughs> in a different way because the, the, the word awe um, is actually not that far away from fear. 
Yes. You know, and so having a, so, but what she meant and what I meant were completely different things because I was in the more awe, like, wow, look at all that's happening in my life. And I'm still kind of showing up in a pretty equanimous way and helping people. And, and I do have a lot going on. Uh, and, and that led to the, the, the conversation too. It's important to practice even when you don't feel like it. Um, uh, so it was a really lovely class, but it's reminded me of, of that being present with yourself and what your experience is and then having uh, really, truly some insight that, wow, this is a big feeling, but maybe I don't have to be so afraid once you explore it. Maybe it's awe. Yeah. Yes, and beautiful. I love that. Yeah. And uh, I think one, one, one of the great advantages or, uh, or possibilities in doing mindfulness practice is to learn that uh, we don't have to be afraid of our fear. <laughs> we don't have to be afraid of our anger. We don't have to be afraid of our sadness. It's possible to turn towards it <laughs> and hold it in a way that's very wise and very compassionate. <laughs> and something begins to evolve. Something changes. There's freedom to be found in that. The, there is... Uh... You, you've talked about, uh, I mean, we're talking about mindfulness is such a key factor in, in our day-to-day lives of being able to manage them uh, and get in balance. And, uh, of course, it's a bandied about word these days. It's, it's, it's like guru. Everybody's a guru and everybody's mindful about, you know, so we can yeah. get mindful and make more money and stuff like that. Um, but uh, one of the things you did talk about as an exercise that I think I'd love for you to expand upon, and that's uh, using mindfulness uh, and asking yourself about the motivation of your thoughts. And I think, uh, and I know that that's a primary thing for myself, that uh, I'm always... um, I'm always trying to be present with the self-interest that I may have in any one situation. Certainly in, in the work that I do, uh, I'm dealing with a lot of people and a lot of people having different motivations. And, uh, and self-interest is obviously there. And it's there for me. And uh, I think that that's an extraordinarily important part of mindfulness. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how to actually uh, approach uh, dealing with motivation and dealing with where your thoughts, uh, where they go and and how they're formed. Yeah, I think discovering what uh, our motivations are uh, in what we say and what we think. What's the uh, motivation? What's is a very, very important part of uh, learning to be free, learning to recognize and know ourselves. I spent a year of my life uh, imagining uh, what I, if, if that day, if that day was going to be the last day of my life, uh, how would I live that day? What was important for me? What, would, what was I motivated to do? And that was uh, uh, very helpful for me to clarify the basis upon which I wanted to live my life. Uh, what the values were I had, what the wishes I had, uh, the relationship I had with other people, uh, how I saw myself in relationship to other people, what I thought was really important in relationship to them. And in the process of having that, doing that exercise, I flushed out all kinds of uh, petty, silly, unhealthy, unhealthy uh, motivations that uh, normally would have been hard to see and note and recognize. 
but having that contrast between if this was my last day and what do I really want to do uh, showed me a lot about myself. Mm. And let's talk a little bit about that with uh, regarding self-interest. Mm. I mean, that we all walk around in a bubble of self-interest. Yeah. And, um, you know, and how to, how can we transform that self-interest? Obviously, um, I mean, compassion has got to play into it, what we see around us and how we react to it and how we sometimes shy away from it. Uh, can we talk a little bit about compassion vis-a-vis uh, yeah. -vis, uh, self-interest? Well, self-interest is a little bit vague concept, so we have to be clear what we're talking about. But there's, uh, if, we talk, if we think self-interest means being self-centered, then uh, where we're, we're preoccupied with ourselves, then what mindfulness can do is to show how that hurts. Mm. Conceit or arrogance or self-centeredness, which is unhealthy, uh, actually uh, is painful to have and for most people. And if we really see the cost of it, then of course we want to give it up because it's so painful. It, it limits us, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and instead of being self-centered, uh, I, well, I think it's helpful to be situation-centered. And what I mean by that is that we're centered in the situation that we're in. So the center is us, is, we, is myself. And so, but we're not focused on only ourselves, but we're also, we include ourselves in the wider picture. If I have a thorn in my foot, um, then I would take it out. And uh, I'm not ignoring myself, but I'm not preoccupied with myself either. I'm situation-centered, means the awareness flows out from within, flows out, includes me, and flows out into the wider world as well. And I take care of whatever part of that circle of the world that needs the attention at any given time. And if it's a thorn, I take care of myself. If you have a thorn in your foot, I'll help you take it out. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so, in for mindful people who do mindfulness practice, don't have to be too concerned about being self-centered in an egotistical way, because it's self-correcting. With, with enough mindfulness practice, you will realize how painful it is to be self-centered. And as you as that self-centeredness decreases. Um, I think there's greater and greater empathy for oneself, greater and greater empathy for the world around us. Mm -hmm. And that it's natural to have compassion for self and others. Mm -hmm. yeah. Essentially, you're, I think, speaking about the ethical foundation of these practices. And if those aren't in place, then you maybe aren't progressing in a kind of a wholesome way. Right. And the ethical foundation uh, has its source in the very simple capacity to notice uh, what is harmful and what is not mm -hmm. and but uh, in order to notice that there has to be a high ethical sensitivity mm -hmm. and ethical sensitivity is almost synonymous with the popular word mindfulness mm -hmm. uh, as people become more mindful yes. they become more self-aware of the impact and of things and that leads to ethical sensitivity yeah mm, beautiful I, yeah i love that term I beautiful heard that. Maybe just uh, explain it out a little bit more, ethical sensitivity. Yeah. So ethical sensitivity is uh, that there's an empathy or an awareness of the impact that we have on others, the, the, the pain and joy that others feel, the pain and joy that we feel. 
so that uh, if we speak out of anger or out of hate, if we eth- have ethical sensitivity, we can feel how jarring that is, uh, how it's a kind of violence that we uh, put on ourselves. If we have ethical sensitivity, we feel what impact our hate speech has on the others, and it hurts us because just because we feel the empathy for them. And so with ethical sensitivity, we're very uh, keenly tuned in to um, self-harm and other harm. Mm-hmm. And the reverse, we're tuned into what's beneficial for self, what's beneficial for others. Mm-hmm. And it isn't, it isn't out of a should, it's not ethics out of a commandment or out of a, a policy mm-hmm. or a rule, but it's ethics that comes out of um, a deep awareness of our interconnectedness and our mutual, uh, the way in which we affect each other. Um, and wanting to care for ourselves and others. And caring for ourselves and caring for others is not so separate, mm-hmm. turns out. Uh, you can't really care for yourself without caring for the world around you. And you can't care for the world around you without caring for yourself. Mm. Yes. Um, just to continue on that line, and because uh, you're talking about something now, boy, is that relevant to us now with the polarization Oh yeah, that's going on in this country through this uh, election year and um, the really tough, tough stuff that is uh, happening between people of of also within groups and not just the you'd expect the major group, the Democrats, the Republicans, but within these groups themselves, there's polarization and and uh, you know the gigantic separation. The us and them is is really so prevalent, uh, and and you know that's what we're talking about now. What uh, what are your just your experience and your thoughts around what's going on in this country at this point? So what I've learned from this practice is the ability or the possibility of keeping the awareness, keeping the heart, maybe those two are the same thing, uh, open enough that. Uh, that everything's included in it. So all beings, everyone in the world, the world is included in my heart. And uh, if I can stay open. And there's no reason not to stay open. Uh, and that's a sacred dimension of life, is the ability to have an, an awareness that includes everything in it. Nothing, No one's excluded. However, at the same time, the hope is that that kind of inclusive awareness that doesn't condemn any one person, doesn't exclude anyone from our, from our heart, comes along with enough wisdom to know when it's appropriate to say no. This I don't approve of, this I won't participate in, uh, this has to stop. But we do that, that kind of action and that kind of work uh, with our heart still holding everyone in our compassion, our love, and our care. And the art, the spiritual art, but being able to do both, I think, is one of the great tasks of our of our times, mm. because we have too too much division, as you said, in our society. Too many people excluding each other and and pushing away whole populations of people as being wrong. There can be disagreements, but everyone lives together in my heart. Reminds me just uh, uh, when Ramdas and I and. We're in India. I think you know who Krishna Das is. And um, 
this is a famous story that we tell, but you're just reminding me because you said the exact words that he said, Neem Karoli Baba, which is, uh, I asked how to meditate. I was trying to get a mantra, you know, a young, in my early 20s. And he said, meditate like Christ. When he was uh, put on the cross, he was lost in love with every sentient being. And then we met back the next day and Ramdas said, well, you said, meditate like Christ. Well, how did he meditate? And he just went back and his closed his eyes and, and there was just so much presence of what Christ is. And uh, he, you don't understand, he was lost in love with every sentient being. He is in everyone's heart. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> So you just mm. reminded me of, see, bhakti meets Buddhism. <laughs> That's it. That's what we've been yeah. doing these these weeks with uh, all of our friends. Um, what, uh, you want to take another shot at a question? <laughs> it's your big chance. I, 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 I hope I can have another chance sometime. <laughs> I'd like to meet you. You know, yeah. after yeah. all these, after all this time. <laughs> um. <clears throat> I'm just still reflecting on the the uh, the ethical base, um, uh, you know, that are the precepts, and how um, Raghu, you asked about this cushion for fear, and um, um, it's more of a, a a comment than it is a, a real question. But maybe you have you know more to more to say about it, but this notion that the more um, uh, with ourselves we are, the more mindful, then um, um, the less um, a mess we are uh, when we go to take our practice, whatever that practice, if it's sitting practice or asana practice or chanting practice, that we can find our way to having just any kind of presence or reflection or concentration to gather. And then you talked about hurting ourselves, because I think this just comes directly from notes I have on on uh, your material, but just that, you know, we go over the unskillful exchanges, like so much is so painful, that it, as you said, it's somehow uh, self-correcting. Yes. <laughs> Yes, I think so. I think that the, the more present we are for ourselves, the more we're mindful in the modern language, you know, uh, the more present and aware, the more sensitive we become uh, for our foibles. And when we've caused harm in the world, we really feel it. And one of the, one of the powerful ways to see it is, uh, is going on retreats. You know, a silent meditation retreat uh, is a real truth teller. Really find out what's really going on. And not a few people have gone on retreat and only then uh, been shocked to discover what they did. And they're just kind of, oh no, I've caused harm. Mm -hmm. And a few people have had to leave, the ret leave retreats then and there because they had to go make amends or ask for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have talked about something that I, I would like to expand upon, and that is, Settle the heart first. And you gave an analogy that I loved, which was about how high you would jump from a standing position <laughs> yeah. and how high you would jump if you first crouched and that whole analogy of uh, going backwards before. 
uh, first, which is a, an unusual way to approach things, but it turns out uh, very skillful. Can you talk about that? Settle the heart yes, first. Yes, yes. So the, the analogy is if you stand on your tippy toes and you try to jump, you're not going to go very far. But if you bend down first, then you can get some, you can jump higher. And so sometimes you have to go backwards to go forwards. And that's maybe, I don't know if that's why meditation retreats are called retreats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and so uh, sometimes you know some people feel that meditation is selfish because it's self-absorbed or you're focusing on your, only on yourself. And um, but uh, we need to kind of settle our hearts. We need to kind of focus back on ourselves in such a way that we can uh, uh, free ourselves from our attachments, our fears, our angers, our resentments, our hurts, and uh, take care of that part of ourselves. So then we come back with so much more to offer mm-hmm. for the world. And, uh, and so rather than being selfish, it's not any more selfish than, um, you know, if, we, if, we've been, if we're really dirty, we've been working really hard, we're sweating really badly, and, and uh, most people excuse themselves for a few minutes to go take a shower. And they do that, most people do that alone. And, uh, and no one blames them for being selfish because they've gone into the bathroom for a few minutes to take a shower and get clean. Most people, they come out, they're happy that, oh, my friend's not clean and I can give him a hug. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so it's not so different spiritually or psychologically mm-hmm. that uh, we need to take inner showers. Mm-hmm. And uh, meditation and spirituality and retreats are a form of inner showers to do the cleansing mm-hmm. that lets us come back into the world in a clean way mm-hmm. that... Uh, we can benefit people, we can support people, and people want to kind of take in the cleanliness, the purity that we have. And in a practical way, uh, just practice. What do you usually talk to your, uh, to your audience, to your students? How do you, uh, I mean, many, many, many people have a hard time to commit to a day-to-day practice, meditation, any practice, mindfulness practice, whatever it may be. How do you advise people how to cut through the, well, my mind wanders too much. There's no way that I can, oh no, I can't stop my, you know, everybody, everybody has, I usually say to people, you're no different than anybody else. So these, these excuses just don't cut it really. But how do you talk to people about, because there is a foundation that's obviously extremely important to be able to get your life, I, I love the term life in balance. We have a whole course that we're going to be uh, releasing soon about, uh, which includes just that kind of practical advice. But what would yours be around that day to day? I think if uh, someone tries a meditation practice, they should consider meditation to be a failure-free zone. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that uh, there's no failure when you meditate. So if the mind wanders a lot, um, it might be just the right thing that you need to uh, work through and discover and see and understand in yourself. Um, and it's part of the process of waking up, part of the process of developing meditation. It's not a mistake. It's just what we have to work with. So I think consider it's failure-free zone. Um, it can make it a lot easier. Then we're not going to get discouraged when it's different than what we think it's supposed to be. Mm. <laughs> failure-free zone. <laughs> Let's get a, a bumper sticker for that one. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Um, here, the other thing I can, the other thing I yeah. can say about uh, a daily practice. You asked about motivation before, 
And I think that uh, I, I often believe that it's uh, more useful to spend some time every day thinking about what your deepest intention is for your life for that day than it is to uh, meditate every day. Hmm. Really? And uh, because uh, it's one of the most preci precious resources we have inside is our intention. And to re it's so easy to live on the surface of our life and surface intentions and petty things. But to really spend some quality time with ourselves, what do I really want? What's really important for me? Mm -hmm. And if meditation then fits into what's really important, then we're going to be more motivated to meditate. Mm -hmm. If what's really important in the depth of our hearts for ourselves has no relationship to meditation, then maybe you're better off not meditating. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> exactly right. Mm. Really. Well, what also, um, you know, how important the other, um, the support, you know, if someone's out there on their own trying to meditate and they don't have a teacher and they don't have friends that they talk to about meditating, I mean, you need to, there's other, you know, supportive literature to read. And I mean, it's a whole, you know, uh, you know, it, it's, that also would be helpful, you know. Satsang Sangha, yeah. right? The Buddha said uh, 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 when he was asked, well, out of the uh, um, the refuges, the three refuges, what is the most important one? And he, you know, he would say, absolutely Sangha before anything, before refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma, Sangha. And I'm, and I'm very grateful to my community, the people that I practice with, because it's very clear to me but however far I've managed to go in this practice, I couldn't have done it without the community around me. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Same here. Yeah, very much so all these years. Okay, I've got a big finale for you. Okay. Is it the finale? Yeah, we're at the end of our show, as they say. Uh, we haven't talked about, uh, and, and this is something you've, you've done a number of talks on, I know, and it's emptiness. I think we need to uh, dispel, it's like the no-self thing, we need to dispel some of the fear around emptiness. Yeah. Why do we want to be full of nothing, be nothing? How can we be nothing? And and if, uh, and a little bit from, um, well, I'll just tell you one thing, and maybe that it's a little bit too leading, but uh, at one point, uh, one time, Ramdas was asked about his ex direct experience with Neem Karoli Baba. And he was just, he got lost in the real feeling of being with this unconditional love, basically. And the whole room just was permeated with that, with that uh, emotion, that bhav, as it's called in, in the East. And then he stopped, and he just over and over repeated he was totally empty. He was totally empty. And that, my own experience of Neem Karoli Baba, Maharaji we call him, was there was absolutely nothing in there that was hooking on to anything. There was completely, absolutely empty. So emptiness and love, there's a way in which they're connected. I just want to hear your First of all, uh, explaining what that emptiness is to you and, and through your own direct experience and how it might correlate to love. Well, actually, can I ask, I mean, just tag on to that, is that 
how different is that from the concept of um, no self that we started mm. with? Yeah. Yes, I think they're, they're all very closely connected. And uh, I, I, you talked earlier of being very practical. And I think one of the most practical ways of understanding emptiness is uh, you're empty of greed, hate, and delusion. Mm. And without greed, hate, and delusion, there'll be no self-attachment. Mm. And you experience not self. And, uh, and without greed, hate, and delusion, then we're kind of an open heart, we're an open field, we're an open mind to uh, love this world. Like no, no place to get uh, for something to stick to you. Exactly. Mm. Great. That's simple, direct, and, and practical and attainable. <laughs> <laughs> Just get rid of greed, delusion, and, uh, yeah, well, and hatred. Yeah. See, why didn't you remember hatred? Okay, got me. See, <laughs> this is my constant uh, conscience. Here. This is a thought that you can then, you know, spend some time with. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Gil. Baba oh, Gil. Baba Gil. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to get a new name today. Yeah. <laughs> You've had that name, Baba yeah, Gil. Yeah. <laughs> um, and now, people, uh, everybody out there, there is a. Uh, as we've uh, proven with Saraswati's recounting of all of the talks that she's heard, uh, and you simply need to go to, well, you go to uh, Insight Meditation Center. So I am. So give us the uh, URL. It's insightmeditationcenter.org. Okay, insightmeditationcenter.org. You will find a whole lot of great, great talks from Gil. Uh, on many, many different subjects. We brought some of them up today. Uh, and I mean, and it goes back years. I mean, yeah. how far back does it go? Well, I think it goes back uh, 15 years. I mean, years. it's incredible. That's what I meant about just being so, uh, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's so incredible. It's a bit embarrassing. That <laughs> 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 I, I could have spoken so much. <laughs> <laughs> well. uh, there also uh, is a, a book that you can get uh, online, The Issue at Hand. Is it The Issue at Hand? Yes. And it's essays on uh, Buddhist mindfulness. I think that uh, is a very practical guide that uh, yeah. you certainly can... Uh, can get with from from Gil, and that's uh, you'll find that up on the site as well. We'll put it up on the on our uh, mind rolling page on Be Here Now Network, where you can find uh, all of uh, Gil's friends. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> thank you again. Uh, really appreciate it, and uh, we hope to do this uh, uh, on a regular basis somehow. It was great to spend time with you, two of you. I loved it. Thank uh, you so much. We Thank loved you. it. Thanks Thank for your time. Thank hey. you. Bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.